Welcome to the Nature Recovery Podcast. We're going to take a closer look at some of the solutions to counter biodiversity decline. And we'll find out more about the people behind these ideas. Hello, and thank you for downloading the Nature Recovery Podcast. I'm your host this week, Stephen Thomas, and it's a particular pleasure that we're going to be learning about biodiversity net gain with Nat Duffus in this episode. Uh, this is a real interest to me because biodiversity net gain is just one of those things, especially if you're based in the UK, you just hear all the time, you hear in uh, meetings, in planning applications, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like that situation for me where whether it's at a party or um, like a co-worker and you've sort of, you kind of know who they are but you forgot their name and you kind of keep having a conversation about them but actually you kind of need to find out more but you're sort of too embarrassed to ask so it was really awesome that I could sit down with someone that actually knew lots about biodiversity net gain um, and I knew there were some challenges with it but Nat explains it in real detail and it was a real education for me and that's what this show is about so I'm asking the uh, the questions so you don't have to anyway enough about me I talk too much let's go and chat to Nat Duffus I'm very glad today that I'm joined by Nat Duffus, uh, who is a PhD student at the School of Geography and Biology. Um, hello and welcome, Nat. Um, hello, thank you for, for having me. Okay. Do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself, what you do and the current research that you're looking at? Um, yeah, so I am primarily a conservation biologist, um, focusing on insects and invertebrates, because I think Bugs are really awesome and I'd like them to stick around a bit longer. And kind of the, the field I've kind of fallen into is how do we mitigate our impacts on nature? So how do we reconcile the need for affordable housing or renewable energy infrastructure with the need to also conserve nature? So that's kind of led me down the road of biodiversity net gain and how that's functioning um, in its role in nature recovery in England. Okay. So, I mean, you mentioned the biodiversity net gain, which is something that um, I hear about all the time, especially with the kind of planning and housing. Um, and obviously it's a big part of the UK's governmental strategy on sort of uh, protecting biodiversity. Can you maybe just illuminate a bit kind of, so, so what, is, what is biodiversity net gain and, and how did it come about? Yeah, so biodiversity net gain has actually been floating around for several years now. Um, if we go back to 2012, um, England launched some biodiversity offsetting pilots to see how biodiversity offsetting might look with developers. And then in 2018, the National Planning Policy Framework mentioned net gains in biodiversity, but nobody really understood what that might look like until now. And now we're kind of putting the foot on the gas with biodiversity net gain and from November 2023, for most developments in England, it's mandatory to approach development in a way that leaves biodiversity in a measurably better state than it was originally found in. So that's the kind of key principle there, um, a measurably better state. So more biodiversity than before, while still carrying out your development or land management. Okay. Um, so on the surface, that sounds awesome. Um but the sort of the, the, the measurable bit was the key word that you said there. And I guess, uh, so how is the measure of B biodiversity net gain? How is that created or scored? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so biodiversity is obviously an incredibly complex, wonderful thing encompassing all the elements of the natural world. So measuring it is 
incredibly challenging. So England has developed a biodiversity metric, which is a proxy for biodiversity. And by looking at a site, we take into account the size, the location, the distinctiveness. So how unique is the habitat? Is it rare? And things like that. And then also the condition. So is it a good condition habitat, a poor condition habitat? And that all translates into these numbers. So how many units is it worth? And then you project what it will look like in the future. So will it be bigger? Will it be more distinct? Will it be in a better condition? And when you look at the, the current biodiversity and then the future estimate, the future estimate should be 10% more than the current one to get that 10%. Um, so that is a, a very rough proxy of biodiversity using habitat features. So obviously that leads to, to some concerns as to how well that proxy represents every facet of biodiversity. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of something there when you take a kind of a living system and you kind of break it down into a numbers, like an algorithm. Um, it is a model, it is a proxy, it's never going to be perfect. And so I guess from what you've seen in your work, do you think a high biodiversity uh, net gain score, high biodiversity metric based on based on what you've explained, does that actually equate to areas of high biodiversity or has your research found any issues with that? Yeah, so this is the crazy thing. We have very little evidence to support this metric and its power in estimating biodiversity. Um, we do have some work coming from Oxford, um, so Isabel Hawkins's paper, which found that there was no correlation or no consistent relationship between the, the units that the biodiversity metric gives and species which are a conservation priority. And the Agile initiative at the Oxford Martin School, we have been collecting um, invertebrate data, so beetles, butterflies, um, loads of things, just traffing, and um, we're going to compare those with biodiversity metric scores and see if there is a relationship there. And I think when we think about very distinct habitats like um, rare fens or meadows, the, the unit scoring system probably does give them the units that they deserve. But when we think about habitats that don't get so many units, so things like farmland um, and modified grasslands, they get very low units, but they can hold wonderful amounts of biodiversity. So this summer we were doing some field work on a farm and it appeared to be this quite sterile wheat field. Um, but around the margins, you had wonderful flower mixes that supported some incredibly scarce species. So one was the bombardier beetle, um, which is a really, really scarce beetle, but very charismatic. Um, it shoots corrosive spray as a defense mechanism, which now that I say it doesn't sound that charismatic, <laughs> but it's very cool. If you're into insects, <laughs> if you're an insect geek, that sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, but the biodiversity metric, because that's a cropland, it would get a very low score and would be much easier to develop on and compensate for. Um, so things like that, I think the metric is very likely to underestimate and I think our results will probably support that, that it is underestimating the biodiversity of some of these habitats. Yeah, um, I mean I come from a bit of a forestry background so you've got me thinking also about you know when you see uh, plantations on ancient woodland you know and actually if you look at them in real time they're completely sterile often you know conifers very acidic top layers of organic soil but you know the the, the seed layer is deep in the soil so they're actually blooming with potential biodiversity but again what you would measure on the site um, isn't there and I guess there's a lot of interesting things there with like sort of farmland 
and other things where if it hasn't been sprayed to an inch of its life, it could have hundreds and hundreds of years of rich, you know, seed mixes, weed mixes in there. Um, but obviously it's not going to look as attractive score-wise to, a, to, like you say, a Fenland. Um, and I guess sort of on that, I, one of the challenges then with, with BNG is that there seems to be a financial incentives from what I can see for developers to find out that there's there's limited biodiversity in the site because obviously if you've got if you say this site is in low biodiversity the money you have to spend to improve it or offset it or do whatever is is lower than if you've got a really high scoring Fenland it's going to cost you 10 20 30 times more to try and either improve that biodiversity or offset it by by building um, a building on it um, and I don't know if I've got a cynical mind in that regard that I can see how you could, well, you could play that system. But, I mean, do you, from what you've seen, does does unethical practice occur in the real world? And I guess, you know, if it does, how do ecologists that are out there doing the world, and, and, and is it regulated? How, how do people deal with that implicit pressure that often the surveys being paid to do this BNG is coming from housing developers who, um, they may be neutral, but their desired outcome is to have a low biodiversity score from, from a financial point of view. Maybe not. I'm not trying to judge their ethics. I don't know. Do you, is, it, is it as messy as it sounds in the real world? Yeah, so there are many brilliant ecologists who can do an amazing job of biodiversity net gain calculations who are very ethical, hold fast in what they think a habitat's value is. But there are examples of this going wrong. So um, as you say, there is an incentive to find lower biodiversity and there are examples of kind of a negotiation happening between the ecologist and the developer because the habitat has so many biodiversity units that it's going to be too expensive to compensate for. So you have this kind of conversation between the developer and the ecologist and you see the units kind of start to to trickle down to a point where it's affordable to to offset. Um, and I, I hope that those examples are are rare and not kind of the the kind of standard, but it's very hard to know. We have a bit of a problem with biodiversity net gain and monitoring and governance. Um, there, I think less than a third of local planning authorities in England have in-house ecological expertise. So it's going to be expensive for them to kind of consult on these plans and to get somebody to thoroughly look through the metric and make sure that everything is as it should be. Um, the government has announced that there will be more support for local planning authorities to um, check these things, but I think broadly um, planning authorities are in agreement that it's not enough and that monitoring and governance will be very challenging. And on the other side of this, I suppose, there is a huge incentive for developers to overpromise what they're going to do. So you start getting into cases of 20% net gain, 30% net gain, and we have to think about, is that practical? Is it feasible? You know, is, are these large-scale restoration projects going to come to fruition if nobody's checking them, if nobody's making sure that they, they happen? And I think this is also going to be driven by the fact that developers can now sell any excess gains they get on site. So if they go above their 10%, they can then sell that. So the incentive to overpromise is is huge. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess whenever whenever a market is created, you know, there's always unusual market forces. So that that was really interesting to hear that I didn't know about that they can they can overpromise and then sell a promise. 
One of the things I think that concerns me a lot, and it's the same with carbon, is whenever you have these measures but they become a target, then that measure becomes problematic because is it actually a, a, a true measure? So we talked about, I guess, some of the pro- problems with BNG. But going back to the, what you said initially, at its heart, you know, creating, you know, wherever there is any kind of development, increasing increasing the amount of biodiversity from, from the development seems like a really, really positive statement and outlook. So on the flip side, are you, you know, have you seen examples where, where the BNG process metric has worked really well and created something wonderful for nature? And I guess, is, is it a static thing, this kind of score, or, or, or will it get improved over time, you know, in, in light of some of the problems that you said and the lack of ecologists that we have? It does sound like we need more ecologists, but yeah, to go back to that. So has it, have you seen examples where it's worked well? And does the scoring of, of BNG, does that get adapted over time? Yeah, so at its heart, absolutely. We need, we need development. That's not something that's going to stop. And we need to go for nature recovery as well. So finding a way to embed nature and nature recovery into the planning process is, is always going to be a positive thing. And there are so many ecologists who are working really hard on creating best practice principles and giving guidance and making sure that it's being done correctly and with all the support possible so that it, it does work. There have, been, there have been some good examples. One is Kidbrook Village, which is in southeast London, and it is a, a, wonderful, a wonderful development. They've managed to build somewhere in the realm of 5,000 homes um, while also achieving over 100% net gain, which is, they wanted this to be like a really nice case study. Um, So they've got wetlands, they've got green play areas, and they've got this wonderful landscape architect who's been kind of weaving nature through this development and supported by the the London Wildlife Trust. And that is a really amazing example of of what like creativity can do and really Mm. bring people and nature together. But I think that's a, a brilliant example, but I do wonder if every development will have the, the time, the resources, the support to achieve that kind of level of net gain. Yeah, no, I need to, I need to look at that. But that's, that's great to know it can be, can be done. And then, um, yeah, sorry, the second question is, so there are good examples. And this kind of metric, the way it's calculated, is that, is that fixed in place or does it adapt over time? Yeah, so we have seen some changes in the metric over time. So we're currently waiting for metric 4.0 to be released, which will be the metric that is used from November. Between between now and kind of 2012, we've had metric 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. So there have been changes um, in response to, to feedback. So I am hopeful that work from the Agile Initiative and other researchers in, in England will inform the metric and make changes and we can build it into something that functions better as a proxy for biodiversity. Um, but some of the, the problems we've just discussed around like markets and kind of putting numbers on nature, those kind of things don't necessarily go away. So I think we'll have to find a way to kind of fix some of these problems that are alongside the metric. Yeah, but we might get higher scores for grasslands or way, ways, better ways of sort of checking rather than just saying, you know, this, this is a meadow, this is a fenland, it's brilliant, this is just a bit of farmland, there's nothing of value there and actually opening the eyes to, to uh, looking that nature is everywhere and actually some of the oddest places are sometimes biodiversity rich. So stepping back from a bit from, from BNG and we kind of ask this question to lots of people just because we get sometimes different answers, which is when you hear the term nature recovery, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so 
I think when I think of nature recovery, I think it's about recognizing that nature is irreplaceable and what we have, that's, that's all we have. And I think we need to kind of completely turn the car around at this point and stop. It's not just thinking about how do we stop depleting nature, but nature recovery is about how can we um, actively encourage nature and make sure we have as much nature as possible around us, um, which benefits both our, ourselves and, and nature. Um, Obviously, I, I love insects, and I think we should conserve insects because I think they're really cool. I want like our kids and grandkids and their grandkids to play with worms in the garden and things like that. But also, they're so helpful to us as well, and I think that's a really important way of getting people on board, is thinking about pollination, um, nutrient cycling, things like that. Like Without nature, we'd be lost. So I think it's, it's really important just to start thinking about how we can turn that car around and start increasing nature. Yeah, you made me think there of the, um, there was an experiment, two different tanks basically filled with like leaf litter and, and detritus and one had insects and worms in it and one didn't and basically, you know, on a time lapse, the one with insects and worms, it just, within minutes, all of that, those nutrients had been broken down and turned into the soil and you could see the soil being richer and it was aerated versus something that was sort of static and sterile and, and not moving and I think that's a nice way to think of all the wonderful things that insects do. And again, then, so with the what you do, are you? Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel pessimistic? Do you feel neutral or more nuanced about the future of human relationships with nature and our ability to to turn the car around, as you say? Yeah. So honestly, it's a bit of a pendulum. I kind of swing between the extremes. So if I spend a lot of time reading about biodiversity decline and the way we're treating the natural world, I get very pessimistic about humanity and kind of our ability to change but then being in academia and being surrounded by so many people who are passionate about making the change and who are researching ways to make these changes I think gives me so much optimism so listening to to talks um, reading people's work I think I find that very inspiring and it does give me a lot more confidence also coming back to sites of nature recovery I think that also um kind of gives me gives me a bit more hope one is one example in oxford is um lye valley which is a calcareous fen um and is managed by a, a volunteer group called friends of lye valley and they have this wonderful vision they go out and they're trying to create and restore this wonderful green strip of, of fen in the middle of oxford and you know they dedicate so much of their time to that are so passionate about seeing it work and that's one of those sites as well, which is threatened with development and impacts and things like that. So they spend a lot of time um, kind of thinking about how they're going to have to respond to that. So I think seeing the way that people come together to protect their local patch of nature, I think as well, is, is so inspiring and does keep me slightly more on the, the optimistic side. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great attitude. I, I, I probably swing uh, my Twitter feed last night. I was overjoyed that the marine protection zones finally yes. being put in place in the Atlantic and then two two scrolls later uh, there was a report that the Antarctic sea ice is thinner than it's ever been before and uh, you know we're all we're all <laughs> we're all we're all in trouble um, I have but... so much Arctic sea ice anxiety <laughs> <laughs> every time I see an iceberg's broken off or something I get like a little like full palpitation yeah um I mean, the, the, the interesting thing I found uh, speaking to other people, you know, is na nature is highly resilient and highly adaptable. I mean, we aren't as humans as a species. Um, it's just about kind of 
giving it time and stuff. And I think we are going to see novel ecosystems. Um, and, and things can work. It's just, but like you say, we, we really need to take our foot off the gas of, of, of driving uh, destruction into so many bits of nature at the, at the same time. And, and that's the thing that I love about nature recovery is it doesn't often take much. It's quite simple. Um, there are these grand visions and these volunteer groups do amazing things. Live Valley is absolutely beautiful. And I love the fact that there's human access, but on a boardwalk. So there's no, because that's another thing for me is about the, unless we get people into nature, um, it's very easy to be to have no nature connection, to be distanced from it, and then you're like, well, a housing development is better than a than a than a farmer's field because that farmer's field has nothing in it. Rather than if you get people digging in it and seeing the worms, the springtails, all these kinds of things, uh, then then there's there's a greater understanding. Um, so yeah, f final question then. Uh, thank you so much for explaining everything today about BNG and. Um, what's happening in that, that arena. But where would you go? Where, where are your favourite places of nature that you would escape to? Ooh, that's, a, that's a really hard question. Anywhere with insects. Um, but I think my particular favourite is um, I'm from Aberdeen and we have some brilliant coastal habitats there, especially the cliffs. Um, you can spend a whole day just walking up the cliffs, um, seeing porpoises from the sea, there's puffins, um, also seeing like things from the terrestrial side, so like marsh orchids, bumblebees, it's just a fantastic place um, to go. So many seabirds, um, it's really, really brilliant. Um, but I've also, I also kind of have a, a quite strong attachment to places I've done field work. So this summer, some of the farms I visited, um, they were just lovely places to be. Um, and you know, you can find nature there as well. So yeah, any, anywhere outside, anywhere not the office is brilliant. Oh. Great. And on that note, I think we should end uh, so we can go out and see some nature. But thank you so much uh, for talking to us today. And thank you for all you're doing to uh, promote and uh, protect insects through your, through your research and through many other things that you do. But yeah, thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. So that was this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I hope you learned something. As you can tell, I learned a lot there. Um, if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, or if you disagree with anything, you can get in contact with the show. We're at Nature Recovery on Twitter. Next week, we're going to be talking to Patrick Greenfield from The Guardian. He's a, an environmental journalist that had a big expose, along with some other journalists this year, um, about phantom carbon credits, exposing some of the things going on with the Red Plus um, carbon offsetting scheme, which is used by companies such as Disney uh, and major corporations to to claim that they're reducing their carbon emissions but as ever when you dig a little bit deeper um, sometimes the truth is a bit murkier but yeah thanks so much for listening you've been listening to the nature recovery podcast with me Stephen thomas please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you can please consider leaving us a review as it will really help other people to find us also, why not consider sharing this episode with someone you know? You never know, you might get them interested in the wonderful field of nature recovery. If you want to find out more about the activities of the Lieberhume Centre for Nature Recovery, you can find us on Twitter at Nature Recovery, or you can visit our website for more information. That's www.naturerecovery.ox.ac.uk. Thanks so much for listening.